All right, let's go Ruth chapter 4. Ruth chapter 4. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, the text up on the screens behind me in just a little bit. We also have some physical Bibles scattered around the room, little racks beneath the seats. If you don't own a Bible, we would invite you to take that physical one home. Uh, the re- reason for that is incredibly simple. We believe that God uses His Word for all kinds of important things, but chief among those important things is that He uses it to reveal Himself to His people. We want you to know God. Like, that's like the mission of our church, uh, for you to know Him, be known by Him, and for your entire life to be shaped through the lens of that knowing Him. And so if you don't have a script, copy of the Scriptures of your own, take that one, and uh, I'll call it a good day. Uh, I also have a bone to pick with the, uh, the cave team. The, 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 no one in this room at all is ready for a snow background on the foot. <laughs> no one. Everybody saw that, and everybody went, oh, no. <laughs> We're going to have to change that. I'm just saying. All right. So we are about as deep as we can get now into uh, our effort to walk through the book of Ruth together. We are welcome to week number eight. No one saw we eight weeks out of Ruth, uh, and at least not me. Um, and so we're going to get most of the way through chapter four this morning. And Lord willing, uh, we're going to shut it down next week, uh, finish it all off. Um, if you're brand new here around here, uh, around here though, uh, Ruth is a very short story sandwiched in between two much larger stories in the Old Testament: the story of the judges and the story of the kings. All right, two major kind of bookends of of pre-exilic uh, Israel. Uh, you got these the the judges and you got the king. As long as they're in the Promised Land, you kind of got these two main realms. And and Ruth kind of sits in the middle of that, towards the end, technically inside the the time period of the kings. Uh, but while Ruth has incredibly small footprint, only four chapters, we're learning that it has an absolutely gigantic impact on the story of the Bible. It has a gigantic impact on a lot of things. Bits and pieces are beginning to be exposed of uh, how Ruth's story not only bears weight on Israel's history, but all of God's cosmic story of redemptive history as well. Ruth definitely swings above her weight. Um, we're going to get a little bit more of that story today. So, so what happened last week? Well, last week, we saw the risky encounter on the threshing floor, right? Uh, that, that's what happened. Naomi sends Ruth under the cover of darkness. She sneaks into the threshing floor where Boaz has just feasted and drank and is now gone asleep. And she is to uncover Boaz's feet, right? And then wait for Boaz to take it from there when he wakes up. That was the plan. Boaz wakes up. Ruth humbly and boldly asks Boaz to marry her. She proposes, and Boaz loves the idea. He's kind of giddy about it even. He's, he's absolutely willing to do exactly that. Um, why? Well, because time after time after time after time after time, Ruth has proven herself to be what we call a worthy woman. All right? Boaz sees it. The whole town sees it. Everybody is aware of who Ruth is, and Boaz is ready to go. Absolutely, let's do this. But we got a problem, right? Those of you who know the story or were here last week, Boaz um, is willing, he is absolutely willing, but he does not have the first legal right to step in. There is another redeemer in this family who has a closer, greater claim than Boaz's, and that idea seems, I get it, seems like absolute nonsense in our culture, right? Like, like why does that even matter? Why does it matter that somebody else has a claim on this family? Like we live in a society that works itself silly trying to, trying to argue that love is all you need, right? 
We, we do that to ourselves. But that paradigm simply doesn't work inside the story of Ruth. Ruth pursues Boaz because of his ability to provide for both Ruth and Naomi. And Boaz refuses to do anything in any other way than the right way. This other mystery redeemer is first legal right in this community to step in. But make no mistake, Boaz is motivated. When a man gets motivated, things get done. And so he promises to settle the matter as soon as he can. Ruth sneaks back out of the threshing floor under the cover of darkness. She goes back home to Naomi. And what does Naomi tell her to do? Wait. Right? Wait here. Time to take your foot off the gas. Wait here because Boaz will settle the matter today, she says. If Boaz says he's going to do something, you better believe Boaz is going to do something. That's the kind of guy Boaz is. And that's also where we left things off last week, right? A promise to bring completion. So, so you ready to look at the next chapter in the world's greatest love story? All right. Chapter 4, verse 1. Chapter 4, verse 1. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. Um, Verse 2, and he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. All right, let's call time out there. All right, so, so what do we see? Well, we see that Boaz is handling the matter that day. He's settling the issue, right? He's not dragging his feet in this. There's no, let me think about it for a little while and come up with a plan. No, Boaz jumps all over this. I, I don't know if it took him a little bit to get from the threshing floor back home and then back to the gate, or, or if he just went straight to the gate from the threshing floor. We're not told exactly what his trajectory is there, but however long he take, it takes him, Boaz is on it, right? There, there's, no, there's no waiting around for anything here. And so we're told that he went up to the gate and sat down. So what's that about? Well, don't think of the city gate as some kind of heavily fortified thing, right? It may, might have had a protective element to it, but mostly it's a public meeting space for that town, all right? It's a public gathering place on the edge of town and along the city wall. In fact, a lot of towns and villages uh, in Israel that have been excavated from this time period, like late Iron Age, all right, they have actually found gates carved into the, uh, seats carved into the gate structure. It was so important to them that this be the gathering place that they built their gates to accommodate that this is happening here. And so this isn't just some chance meeting in some random place. Boaz didn't just happen to run into this other redeemer the next morning as they were you know, going about doing different things. This gate in Bethlehem is the designated place in Bethlehem where business gets done. If you've got stuff to buy and sell, farmers tend to have to do a lot of buying and selling of things. You go to the gate to do it. Spend a lot of time sitting there talking to folks. But while Boaz goes to the most likely place that he'll run into the other redeemer, you can still see God's sovereign hand in, at play here because well, Boaz doesn't have to wait very long. He's not sitting around at the gate for a couple of days waiting for the other guy to need some business done. The narrator says, behold, behold. So however long it took Boaz to get from the threshing floor to the gate, whether it was a stop in between or, or not, we don't know. However long it took Boaz to get to the gate, it's precisely the amount of time that was necessary for God to orchestrate this other guy showing up too. So Boaz is doing what he can do, and God is doing what he will. 
Both of those things are true. And Boaz excitedly calls this other guy over. But what does he call him? You see it? Several translations, including the ESV that we're using, calls, it renders it as him calling him friend. That's not a bad translation. It works. It just doesn't work in the way we tend to use that phrase in our culture. All right? Um, we often use friend in a friendly way. This isn't so friendly. Um, the Hebrew here literally means a certain one. It's specifically vague. And that, I know that sounds like an oxymoron, specifically vague, but it's not. All right? Specifically vague. A lot of people think that this is more like our version of calling someone Mr. So-and-so. Meaning, this is an intentional act of not using someone's real name. Does Boaz know this man's name? Absolutely he does. They're family. <laughs> they live in the same small town. Everybody knows this guy's name. Boaz absolutely knows this man's name. But he says, come over here, friend. Why don't you sit down next to me, friend? And so it seems that our mystery redeemer is being intentionally kept a mystery here. Do you think that might come up later in the story? I think it's probably going to, you should probably pay attention. It's going to definitely come up later in the story. Um, it's not just Boaz and Mr. So-and-so. We're also told that Boaz calls together some of the town elders to sit down. So we're walking as a church family through a transition to an elder-led you know, leadership structure right now. Uh, we take that structure from what we believe is uh, the New Testament, New Testament model of the proper organization of a local church. But that New Testament model is not just, you know, doesn't just come from out of thin air. It's built off of things that came before it. One of those things is town elders. All right. Um, all throughout the Old Testament, especially pre-monarchial Israel, uh, we see example after example after example of prominent men in a community that met together to help them determine local issues in that community. Uh, they served as official witnesses to contracts and business deals that were being made. Uh, they ruled over matters of injustice and brought town-level enforcement to that uh, that justice. And they actually heard and and like uh, disputes between two guys that couldn't get along and decided the matter like a jury. Right? And so these town elders kind of had this uh, authority level ruling and witnessing function uh, in the town for all things involved. The, the practice of town elders was picked up by the synagogues in Second Temple Judaism. And the church in the New Testament picked up that practice when it was time to figure out what leadership structure needed to look like in the local church in the New Testament. And so there's this line of, oh yeah, that makes sense, let's do it that way. That's how that works. So Boaz calls together ten elders, we're told. They're just hanging around the gate, probably there for their own business deals that morning. But, I mean, there's, there's likely a lot more elders running around in Bethlehem. They don't, they, I'm sure they've got more than ten, but ten are there. That seems like a good enough group for a quorum. Let's have a, come on guys, sit down. Let's chat. And now it's time to start the proceedings. Verse 3. Then he said to the Redeemer, this is Boaz speaking, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would, call, I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. All right, let's call a time out there. So these two verses have caused... 
just a handful of problems for people uh, who have put forth a lot of effort, worked very hard to try to put all the pieces together in the story of Ruth. Uh, these two verses specifically. Um, Boaz claims that Naomi is selling the land, which sounds cool, except everything we know about this culture, Naomi doesn't have a right to do that. So what does that mean? Um, there's, there's a lot of debate going on here, and there are a number of pathways into a plausible answer. Um, for starters, for starters, it was incredibly rare in Israel for someone to sell a piece of farmland outright. What you usually did, typically you sold the farming rights to a specific location for a specific amount of time. All right? And then by Jewish law, uh, the, those rights always returned back to the original family during the year of Jubilee. All right? And so roughly every 50-ish years in Israel, all the contracts in Israel would be kind of voided out and have to be redone, restructured. And so it's just the system that they had in their culture. And so uh, it's very, very likely that Elimelech would have sold off the farming rights to their land before he and his family moved to Moab. Why? Well, because farmers in Bethlehem could have used the extra acres that Elimelech wasn't using, and Elimelech could have used the cash that that land rights would have sold so he can finance the move. Like, it's a bad idea not to sell it off. So it's very likely that Elimelech would have sold off the farming rights to this land. And so some... Some argue that the year of Jubilee might have happened while Naomi was away, all right? During the time period that she was gone. And so land rights would have legally, naturally returned back to Elimelech. But wait, we just learned that Elimelech's dead, so this land's kind of in limbo now. What do we do? Played fallow for however long. Elimelech doesn't have an heir to pass it along to. We've got to figure out some other pathway. Others argue that the year of Jubilee probably did not happen during this time. I mean, it is the time period of the judges. They don't exactly do what God said to do very well. So others argue that the year of Jubilee had not happened during this time, and whoever apparently bought these rights from Elimelech still holds them for, you know, in, for however, however many law, however many other years more, or, or just in perpetuity until someone else says, no, you can't have them anymore. And so, uh, but now Elimelech's widow is back in town, and, well, she needs some help, right? For Boaz and this other guy, mystery redeemer, Mr. So-and-so, they're in a position to step in and help. See, regardless of who specifically owns what and regardless of what exactly is being bought and sold here, while we have a lot of questions about the details involved in verse 3, we know exactly what's going on in verse 4. We know exactly what's going on in verse 4. Boaz gathers this other family member and a bunch of town witnesses and says, Hey, listen. This is the situation. It's time for a redeemer to step in and fix it. That's what's happening. Friends, I've gathered you here today because we need to buy Naomi's field. Let's do this. Let's get it done. We've got a situation here, and as the redeemers of this family and the elders of this town, we can step in right now and we can make this right. So let's do it. Now, whether that's giving the money directly to Naomi or it's buying, the other guys, uh, buying out the other guy's contract, we, we don't actually know. Uh, whatever it is, though, it's time for a redeemer to go to work. And Boaz says, well, since you have first right, say so. Let's go ahead and make it official right now. We've got everybody here. If you'll redeem it, say that you'll redeem it. And if not, I come next in line, I'll do it. What say you? I don't know if you've ever been cornered into a business deal, but this guy just got cornered into a business deal. No one loves those moments. Like, what's he supposed to say? Like, this, it, 
just think for a second that you're Mr. Redeemer, Mr. So-and-so, all right? How do you respond when you're cornered like this? What are you supposed to do? He's a redeemer. He's got the financial means to just drop the cash right then and there. If he refuses, like, everybody else is going to see that he's leaving this poor widow out in the cold. Like, that's not a good place to be in. And so, whether it's peer pressure or familial pressure, it's all coming to a head right now. So he's got to say yes, right? And that's exactly what we see him say at the end of verse 4. Look at it. (coughs) Excuse me. Verse 4. Uh, if you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know. For there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. So Boaz sets, Boaz sets up this trap here. Mr. So-and-so really has no other choice. He says, yes, He has to say yes. He says yes. Is this this kind of sweep the legs out from from under all the romantics in the room? (laughs) I mean, did Boaz just cut his own legs out from under him? Did he just ruin his chances of getting to be with Ruth? Did, Did true love lose in the end? Just wait. Don't ruin it for people who don't know the story yet, Charlie. <laughs> Have you also noticed that, Ru- that Boaz hasn't mentioned anything about Ruth yet? Not a bit. He's gathered all the important people. He's only talked about helping Naomi with the land. He's only mentioned uh, the land that needs to be redeemed. Nothing about Ruth. Yet. Either, either Boaz is phoning in this effort... Or Boaz just set an incredibly cunning trap. There's really no in-between on on this one. Want to take bets about which one it is? Look at verse 5. Then Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Welcome to the but wait, there's more part of the story of Ruth. If you act now, we'll throw in a Moabite wife for free. But it says, not so fast, Mr. So-and-so. Hang on there. If you say yes, you've also got to take Ruth as a wife. There's much more than just a land deal that's on the line here. You also need to step in and provide an heir for Elimelech. So if you want the, if you want the land, you also have to take Ruth as well. And verse 5 adds a ton of confusion to the confusion that we already had in verse 3. Just an absolute truckload of it. Um, we know that redeemers are a thing. We know that Leverett marriage was a thing, but out other than this exact moment in the book of Ruth, we have absolutely zero evidence at all uh, that they were ever a combined thing. Not one shred. Leverett marriage was a burden placed upon the brother of a dead man, not the succession of redeemers. That's not their job. We know that Mr. So-and-so is not Elimelech's brother because Naomi would have mentioned him in chapter 1 when she said, I don't have any hope of ever getting a husband because that guy would have been it. And so sitting at the gate with this other redeemer and a quorum of town elders, 
Boaz takes two separate Jewish customs that both provide help for those in need, and he smashes them together as a moral obligation. Mr. So-and-so could easily come back here in this moment and say, "Uh uh-uh, that ain't on me. I have, a, I have a duty to handle the land issue, but I don't have the same duty to provide an heir for Elimelech. That ain't my job. That's not me. But Boaz has sprung his trap. Boaz has sprung his trap. Just as, as he cornered Mr. So-and-so into the obvious step of redemption, he has also cornered everyone sitting there at the town gate into understanding that, the, that there is a right thing to do right now. And that right thing is to step in for Ruth as well. And if this were some modern rom-com, the music would swell and everything would get more tense, right? If it were, if it were a movie on Lifetime, it would immediately cut to a commercial. Right? Leave you with the cliffhanger. What's Mr. So-and-so going to say? And this is how we can assume that Boaz isn't phoning this in. It's actually an incredibly crafty plan. Why? Because I think Boaz knows exactly who Mr. So-and-so is. He knows his character. He knows exactly how he will answer when he is cornered in exactly this way. And we see that answer in verse 6. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. And the crowd goes wild. Can't you just hear the everybody erupt into thunderous applause? Yay, Boaz wins. Mr. So-and-so bows out. True love wins at the end of the day after all. Woo! Yay, romance. What was the reason that Mr. So-and-so bowed out? He says that it would impair his own inheritance. What he means by that is the inheritance he wants to leave behind for his own children. If he has a child with Ruth for the legacy of Elimelech, then his other kids' pieces of the pie all get a little smaller. That's how the math works. See, apparently... Mr. So-and-so has the means to step in and redeem when everybody in town is going to see him as the noble redeemer. But he doesn't have the resolve to act when he finds out that that deal is going to cost him the legacy that he's wanting to leave behind. That's the game. Here's a question I really wish I knew the answer to. Uh, Do you think Boaz set all this up so that the, the deficiency of this man's character would be publicly seen? Here's a second question. What do you think all the elders sitting there at the town gate watching this play out think about these two men? Church, the irony here is really, really thick. The concern in Mr. So-and-so to protect his own name and, his inter- and the inheritance attached to it, it might actually be the specific reason why Boaz and the writer of Ruth refused to show us his name. Did you catch that? It might literally be the reason why we're not allowed to know who he is. In a selfish effort to kind of guard his own legacy, Mr. So-and-so ends up being left without one. There's some things in the Bible that I am personally convinced 
God has allowed to be preserved down to us as his people for the purpose of scaring some humility into us. You come across those things yourself? This is one of them. Is it possible for us as Christians, as the capital C church, is it, is it, is it possible for us to, to point to some things that, where, where we opted for, for trying to preserve our legacy or preserve what others might think about us instead of doing what was right? I think, there's, I think there's probably some moments. I think I've been guilty of some moments. In fact, I think we're living through some of those moments right, right now. If you follow news at all about the national level Southern Baptist Convention, uh, like we, we got some junk we're trying to clean up. An absolute mess. Failures that we're trying to clean up on a national level. And those failures are birthed out of exactly this kind of failure. Exactly this kind of failure. Uh, those who had the means to step in and redeem, those who had the means to step in and provide and protect, they didn't have the moral resolve to do that when it became costly to them. They were more worried about what people might think. They were worried about personal and institutional legacy over and above the needs of seeking redemption for the one in need of redemption. Just like Mr. So-and-so, they failed the test. Unless we sit on our high horse, we got our own tests coming down the pipe. Um, I always want to be clear to separate out politics from ministry in here. I want to be very, very careful about that. But we also, we also happen to be living in a, cult, a current cultural moment where I can't watch TV with my kids right now without seeing a campaign ad calling people extremists for seeking to protect lives of babies in the womb. I really wish my nine-year-old had, didn't have to wrestle with that worldview. Church, stepping in to bring redemption to those in need, it will cost us something. Period. Period. It will take more than just means. It will take plenty of resolve as well. Bank on it. By God's grace, Ruth and Naomi and, and even Elimelech, they had a Boaz figure. A redeemer who is full of character capable and willing to step in and do what was right. Boaz, man, he, he immediately goes to work. There's no dragging his feet in this. He, he pulled in all the parties involved. He said, listen, listen, this is the situation, and it's time for a redeemer to step in. Let's go. We can handle this. Whether you're paying attention to it or not, there, there are things playing out around us right now that's going to require some resolute Boaz figures in our culture. We need persons of character to own responsibility even when, especially when, it loses us some other good things we value. Or else, redemption's off the table. To be found faithful will mean leveraging position and leveraging resources and maybe even leveraging personal reputation for those in need. By God's grace, this, this is exactly what was first done for us. Exactly what was first done for us. As the greater and more perfect Boaz, it is good news that Jesus brings both means and resolve to the table. I need both. And it's in all other things, what our Lord calls us to, he has first done perfectly for us. The gospel is not 
the gospel at all if it is not for Jesus' perfect resolve to redeem at great cost to himself. We have no gospel without that. We also have more of Ruth 4 to look at. Look at verse 7. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. Verse 8, so when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilian and Malan. Also, Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malan, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. All right, let's be honest. You have never seen a rom-com where the two competing love interests swap shoes, right? That one's new for all of us. So what's going on here? Why why is Mr. So-and-so giving away his sandal? Well, it's yet another custom, special custom in Israel. Uh, If you're keeping score at home, we now have redeemers, lever at marriage, gleaning, and apparently swapping shoes. Awkward, but okay. So why, why sandals? Well, the narrator tells us explicitly, because that's the way things were attested to in those days in Israel. And this is another pretty clear sign that the story of Ruth was written down much later than it played out, all right? Much, much later. Uh, By the time that the author of Ruth, whoever they are, uh, is pinning these words, even his contemporary audience would have been confused by this. They're going, what? He's like, yeah, yeah, I know it's weird, but back in those days they did weird stuff, all right? But what we need to see here is this. There's a finality here. There's a finality to this. We, we talked last week about Boaz's doggedness to do things the right way. And what we see here is that he is getting things done in the right way. He's nailing down everything that needs to be nailed down. And so the meeting with Mr. So-and-so happens at the city gate. The town elders are gathered and, and so that they can all be witnesses. And now we've got the sandal swap. So it's official, right? Nobody gets to argue with that. There's no going back on this deal. We're done. It's over. And how do these witnesses respond to this finalized deal? Verse 11. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. Okay, so how do they respond? By celebrating at the gate. They throw a party. They're having a good time with it. And it pretty clearly seems to be connected to, uh, to everyone involved. Not, not, not only by fully understanding what just happened and understanding uh, the, the, the means and resolve piece, uh, but everyone also seems to have a depth of knowledge of who both Ruth and Boaz are. Like they understand their stories. It's Proverbs 31, 23 all over again. We talked about it last week. Her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. You can't hide, you can't hide character like that. Everybody knows who Ruth is. Everybody knows what she's walked through. Everybody's excited to see God take the next step in her life. The movers and shakers in Bethlehem are genuinely excited for Boaz and Ruth. And notice who they tie their story to. First they tie it to Rachel and Leah, right? Rachel and Leah. 
matriarchs that God brought from barrenness to fruitfulness. Uh, Women who multiple times throughout their personal stories, they felt alone, they felt unloved, they felt like nobody was paying attention to them, but God continued bringing fruitfulness and care. God continued to bless and raise them up with honor. He also ties Boaz and Ruth's story to the story of Perez, the child of Tamar, who somehow keeps popping up in Ruth's story. Like we've mentioned Tamar like five times now throughout this series. Um, Perez was a child born out of God, bringing honor to a woman that was left destitute. And others didn't care about how she was left destitute. Tamar's story is filled with death and brokenness, but God eventually gave her new life. So the town elders, as they're celebrating what Boaz just navigated through, they give him instructions as well. They say, may you act worthily. May you act worthily. We've seen that word a few times now in this short story, Hail. The elders instruct Boaz to follow through with living consistently with the blessing that God has seen fit to bestow upon him. God has given, respond accordingly, sir. That's our calling too, right? If, if you're here this morning and you're, and you're, you're a follower of Jesus, it, our, our call is not to you know, buckle down and get some things done, drum up the good things that we, we want to see happen around here. No, our call is to act with character and resolve whenever opportunities for that are in front of us. And then our call is to walk worthily in the blessing that God has seen fit to give flowing out of those moments of character and resolve. And I get it, that's not an incredibly attractive like, like call to action. Do what's right, especially when it's hard. Like, who gets excited about that? Which is why Christians also need a second form of response this morning. A, a thankfulness that Jesus has already accomplished all the necessary things on our behalf. We need both. I really want to be more like Boaz in my life. I, I kind of hope you do too. But I'm really, really thankful that Jesus was way better than Boaz ever could be. I'm going to pray and we're going to sing. That's a time that we set aside to respond to God's word. If you, if you want to talk, we'll talk. But whatever you're hearing, you're not a follower of Jesus yet. Can you respond to God's word? The answer is absolutely yes. You respond by meeting Jesus. The Bible teaches that we have all fallen short of the glory of God, that we are all by default separated from him relationally because of our sin. But the Bible also teaches that it is while we were still sinners that Christ died for us. Lord of heaven and earth, the perfect judge of all, is not sitting back on a faraway throne wondering why you can't seem to figure it out like Boaz figured it out. That's not the game we're playing. Why can't you be more like Boaz? No, he is actively working to step in and redeem you in a way that Boaz could never measure up to. The eternal Son of God put on flesh and dwelt among us. He stepped into brokenness at great cost to himself. He lived the sinless life that neither you nor I am capable of living. He died on a cross as a substitute in our place to make full and final payment for our sin. And he was raised again from the dead as a vindication of his own perfect and sufficient righteousness. And now as the one who conquered sin and death he calls on you in this moment to respond to him in repentance and faith to turn from your sin and to him i'd love to help you do that this morning let's talk i'm here for it
Maybe you're here this morning and you need to respond in some other kind of way. Maybe that's by uh, formally joining our church family, or maybe it's time to, to be obedient to Jesus' command to be baptized, or maybe it's time to publicly say yes to the call he's put on your life to take the gospel far away from here. I don't know what that is, but I'd love to help you in all those things too. Whoever you are, and however God's word is calling you to respond this morning, let's, let's all respond together right now. Father, you're good to us. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for the story of Ruth. Thank you for examples of righteous resolve. And we know Boaz was far from perfect. <laughs> that actually gives me hope. <laughs> Maybe I can be just a little more like him, even though I can never get all the way there. Father, for the things around us that require people of character to stand tall, would you give us a character that's not naturally in us? Not for our glory, but for yours. Not for the acclaim that comes to it, but so that those in need may actually be helped. Guard us from chasing after wrong things especially our own legacy. Help us as a church be a Boaz-like church in New Hampshire. Father, for those in here who don't know you yet, would you make yourself known? Would you open eyes to see and ears to hear? We love you. Thank you for loving us with all kinds of resolve first. In Jesus' name we pray.